Never good when the preacher's crying before we get started. It's, uh, <laughs> it's always good. Oh, amen. It's good, to, it's good to have Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we are so very glad that we can sing the praises of your name. Heavenly Father, as we, we lift our voices together uh, with choruses familiar or new, ones that we've sung before a, a thousand times or ones that we're singing for the first time. It, it is all because we know that You're worthy, You're trustworthy. Lord, You have proven Yourself time and time again of, about Your goodness. And, and as uh, friends of mine have walked into this room today uh, to worship, uh, some have come in uh, maybe with a little bit of intrepidation of exactly what's going to happen. Uh, others have uh, been here uh, for decades and decades and decades uh, of worship services. But each one of us have walked in today with certain burdens uh, on our heart and in our minds, certain un uh, uncertainties about uh, maybe a, a person that we love as to their spiritual condition or even our own cynicisms. And God, uh, we, uh, we come before You today asking that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and apply it to the people of God and those who need to know God. Lord, would You guide us into Your truth so that we can be transformed by the beautiful message of the good news of Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, and I hope you've got one with you, uh, and turn with me uh, to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Uh, if you don't happen to have a Bible, that's okay. There's some that are in the seat backs there in front of you, uh, or if you're like me on most days, you can just take out your smartphone and, uh, and, and find your way over to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Uh, and I want to speak to the issue of creating curiosity today, uh, because this is certainly a passage where we see the curiosity of people, and we see what Jesus does with it. Uh, in, uh, in, in common, uh, probably one of the most common cliches that comes to your mind when I, I use the word curiosity uh, is the one, curiosity killed the cat. And we think of, of curiosity sometimes of engendering some amount of danger into our lives. We're not so sure what's going to happen if we're too curious that it might get us into trouble. But as I have encouraged you, I hope that you will be troublemakers for the kingdom of God within this world in which we live. This is one of those places where the curiosity of humans is, is sparked by the work of God. This is the way that God operates. He does these amazing things in the lives of people in us and in, and in the people of God uh, within His church in order to, to leverage curiosity among those who don't know Him yet. And so here in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20, let me read through, down through verse 36. Now, this is right after Jesus has made His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where there has been a dinner uh, around which Lazarus has been, uh, uh, he's been present for. Of course, Lazarus is the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. And there are people, there are religious leaders uh, that are not just plotting the arrest and hopefully the death of Jesus, but now they've decided that even Lazarus, that because everybody's believing his testimony, we even need to secretly get Lazarus killed. And so it now shifts the scene to verse 20, from the Jews to some Greeks. It says, now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. 
And so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that's why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, This voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. And then the crowd replied to him, We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. And Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Uh, one more prayer before we launch in. Father, what we don't know, we ask that you'll teach us what it is that we have not yet become for the glory of God. We pray that you'll make us. Would you give us insight into the life of Jesus and how we can live for him? For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Within this particular passage, this is one of those places where, uh, as I've been traversing you through the Gospel of John, this is one of those difficult places where uh, this is a passage that uh, very easily could be broken up into about seven different sermons. And so, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you seven sermons in one. Uh, aren't you excited? Um, there's only going to be 133 points. Um, no, actually, there are uh, four different ideas that I think uh, could bring together this whole passage, which is packed with all sorts of spiritual lessons and meanings about who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow Him. The first thing that I want you to see from this passage is, is critical for every one of you who is a believer, and that is that your life can create spiritual curiosity among the lost. Uh, sometimes we think uh, that there are the super-Christians amongst the church and that they're the only ones who are actually doing the witnessing and doing the evangelism and doing the ministry, or at least theirs is the work that actually gets noticed and is more important than my work. But I, I think what we see throughout all of the witness of the New Testament is that every single person who is a believer, 
that your life can be leveraged by God, can be utilized by God to create spiritual curiosity in the, in the life of lost people. Uh, because what we see in the previous couple of passages are people who are outcasts, uh, like Martha, who worships Jesus by bringing this very expensive perfume and breaking it it across His feet and anointing Him as if He were uh, the king of everything, because He is. And we also see Lazarus, who has a phantasmagorical kind of story of a guy who was dead and in the grave for four days who's been brought back to life. And so we have a woman who is, is deemed by all of culture as a sinful outcast, a woman of not just no reputation, but like really bad reputation, who's hanging around with this vagabond Jewish rabbi. And then we've got another guy, Lazarus, who apparently was, had some kind of notoriety because people came from, uh, from a, a city two miles away to come and mourn his death when he was in the grave has come back to life. And so you've got one woman of ill repute and one guy with some positive reputation who are all gathered around Jesus. And because of this, people are taking notice, and not just the Jewish people, but it says there in verse 20, now some of the Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, they're the ones who come to Philip, one of the apostles, and says, we want to see Jesus. So these are Greeks who are apparently either interested in or have gone all the way to adopting the Hebrew religion that they've come up for this festival. Uh, They've come up to Jerusalem in order to participate. These are God-fearing people that they want to know, how do I get from where I am, distant and disconnected from God, to God? And, and here, what we see is that our own worship, so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, it says that the crowd gathers around and they sing Hosanna, they cry out Hosanna, they're quoting Old Testament prophecies about Him. And this public worship of Jesus creates an opportunity for the lost to say these critical words, we want to see Jesus. It, it, it means that there is a question that you and I should answer about our own lives, and that is, does my life create a thirst in others to know Jesus? I mean, does that characterize who we are individually and who we are as a church family, that our lives individually and collectively create a thirst among a lost and dying world that they want to know what's different about us? When looking at your life, your worship, your ministry involvement, your conversations, does it push people that they want to know how are you just mannerly? How is it that you've become so courteous? How is it that you're such a nice guy, a nice lady? Or does it it push them to say there is something wholly different about you? There is a, a factor different about your life than anybody else that I know. You're not just nice you're transformed. Uh, That worship thing that you do is not just like a box that you check that sang four songs, listened to the prayer, took a couple of notes on the back of a bulletin, check, done, moving on. But if somebody were in the room with you today and they witnessed your, uh, your demeanor, your passion for worship, which is not defined by did you clap or raise your hands or did you stand solemnly there, it, 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 
Could they gauge the internal passion of your life to say, there's something there that I don't have? And this Jesus that you sing about, I want to know. This Jesus that you talk about, I want to know. This Jesus that you pray to, I want to know about. My point here is that your life can create spiritual curiosity. It does not automatically. Not mine, not yours, not any of ours. It does so as long as we live as passionate worshipers and followers of Jesus. Having signed on the dotted line at some you know, vantage point somewhere back in your life, for me, it was when I was eight years old. I was uh, knelt beside the brown sofa at 445 Camellia Road, Birmingham, Alabama, with my six-foot-two uh, father beside me, guiding me through a prayer where I was confessing my sins and saying that I believed that Jesus had risen from the dead and I wanted to trust Him as my Lord and Savior. For others of you, it was something that happened in your teenage years or your adult life, or maybe it happened just very recently. So no matter where you are on that spectrum of how long you've been in the faith, would your life create spiritual curiosity among the lost because you live out your faith? It can create spiritual curiosity if you will be intentional with it. The second point I think that we see in this passage is that Jesus gives the deepest answer to our spiritual curiosity. Now, I intentionally say the deepest answer, not just an answer. Uh, Jesus could give all sorts of answers. He could give all sorts of philosophical worldviews. He could have offered a systematic theology. He could have published, you know, a, a series of white papers on it all. But instead, if you will look with me again into this passage about how Jesus gives the deepest answer to spiritual curiosity, he says there in verse 23 and 24, he replies to them when they bring people and they say, we want to see Jesus. And, and so they bring these people to Jesus. Jesus' reply is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the Son of Man is an Old Testament uh, term for the Messiah, and it is the most common title that Jesus uses for Himself, reaching back into the Old Testament in order to signal to the Hebrew people, I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And He says, the hour, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then He says, truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself but if it dies, it produces much fruit. And then if you'll skip down to verses 32 and 33, he says, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John, the writer of the gospel, gives us this divine interpretation. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Jesus answers the curiosity of the lost with the message of death. Not the message of, this is going to be easy. Not the message of, this is going to make you comfortable. Not the message that this is a safe life. You know, this idea that the safest place is to be is in the hands of God is a, is a cute little cliche to say, but it's completely false. Now, being in the hands of God is not the safest place to be when you are in this world. Uh, being in the hands of God means that your whole life is set against 
the patterns of this world. Uh, it, it means that you're, you're probably going to have trouble in this world, that we're going to follow after Jesus in this world, and, and His pattern is one of death. Jesus does not give a weak answer based on fleshly desires. Come to me, and, and everything's going to be fine. Come to me, and I'm going to wash away all of your problems. Uh, but instead, what we see constantly through the, the message of Jesus is He says, if you'll come and die, then you will find life. If you will come before me, then you'll carry a burden with me, and you'll walk beside me. And, and it is this beautiful dichotomy that when we walk with God into the death of self, that's when we really find life. The death of Jesus provides life for us. It provides true life for us. And Jesus willfully chooses death. And Jesus answers this curiosity of this crowd with the answer of His willingness to die on their behalf. Now, I, I, I realize why now, as I have been studying back through the Gospel of John, why it was so necessary for God to inspire uh, John, the writer of the Gospel, to give this commentary about what Jesus said that he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Because our natural inclination is, oh, that means we just need to lift high the name of Jesus, we need to make banners about Jesus, we need to talk about Jesus a lot. That's what Jesus meant. But Jesus meant a very literal lifting up off of the earth. He was discussing and he was describing the manner in which he would die. And the manner in which Jesus would die is not something for us to play around with. It's not something for us to scoot by too quickly. The manner that Jesus was going to die was the most humiliating, painful type of death. The manner in which Jesus was going to die was going to put on display for the world just how dastardly our sin debt is. It was going to put on display just how horrific it is of an insult against a holy God that Jesus was not just going to, you know, be hung by the neck or that He was going to have His head lopped off or that a spear was going to be run through His heart, but that He was going to be crucified, the worst of all types of death, the cursing type of death that would happen within the Roman Empire, the one that says, you have committed a crime against the powers of this world. Jesus was going to be lifted from the earth in crucifixion in order to pay the sin debt spiritually for all of us and give this great picture that we should carry with all of our hearts and with all of our lives that the way of Jesus' death reveals the humiliating debt that I had before God. It is not just this declaration of, uh, let's just talk a little bit more about Jesus and everything will be fine but it is the reminder to us that He suffers the wrath of the Father for our atonement, for the covering up of our sins. He gives the deepest answer that you have a sin debt that requires the greatest of all payments. And so then it moves on, I think, in this passage to give us a third idea to hold on to, and that is losing your life is the only way to find true life. He makes it clear that unless you are willing to lose your life, he says there in verse 25, the one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It is this call to die to self. There's no way to keep your life safe for eternity. You might be able to carve out a safe place in this world, a cushy place in this world, an easy place in this world. You might be entrepreneurial enough in order to make it, uh, make it to the, the right retirement you know, kind of threshold where everything is put together just right. Maybe you are really smart with money and really smart with business, and you're able to put a hard shell around your life and your spouse and your kiddos so that you have a comfortable life. But none of that transfers into eternity. There is still this horrific sin debt that we owe. And what it requires is surrender. The illustration I like to use here is the, is the political difference between treaty and surrender. Some of you will remember this, that I, I've, I've spoken about this before. Uh, we, as uh, the United States of America, have a treaty with Canada. There is a boundary marker on maps and registered with governments that our land stops and their land starts. We don't govern Canada. Canada doesn't govern us. We have a treaty. We're friends. We trade favors. We do commerce back and forth. But they're not in charge of us, and we're not in charge of them. And nowhere in the Bible does it ever describe that you get to have a treaty with God. You never keep your boundary markers. You never keep your authority. It's not just being nice neighbors and trading favors. But rather, what he calls for is an absolute surrender, where the boundary marker is taken down and you come under the full weight of the authority of God. This is what it means to die to self, that I no longer am an owner of my own self. And if you want to be like Jesus, unashamedly under the will of the Father, it involves death to self. Becoming a Christian is not to take your life and spin it up to being something good. This is where the great uh, myth comes in as to what religion is all about and what Christianity is all about. Let me put it this way. You are not a good person who needs to be made better. You are a dead person who needs to be made alive. This is the great lie and deception that our neighbors and the people of the world live under, is that they're inherently, at their core, pretty good people that we just need to become better people. I just need the Oprahfication of, you know, reality television on my life. I need Marie Kondo to tell me what it is that I don't need in my house. I need to find the things that spark joy in my life. You know, I just need to buy, get that best-selling book about self-help, and I just need to be a better version of me. There is no better version of you. You are you and you are dead. Your sin has killed you. And so you don't need to be a better version of a dead person. You need to be made alive through the sacrifice of Christ and your faith in Him. And so you and I can create more curiosity among the lost by dying to ourselves and allowing Jesus to live through us. So submit every effort you make of finding spiritual solutions, submit those things to death, and then let Christ 
live in you. But there is one final point that I want to give, and it it comes as a a little bit of a reminder that you know already and maybe a little bit of a warning to all of us about how it is that we live as Christians, and that's this. Crowds are fickle, but God is not. I mean, isn't it interesting that here there is this group of people, who, this group of Greek uh, worshipers, they come up to one of the apostles and they say, we want to see Jesus But then by the end of it, they don't know what to do. Uh, And we see this throughout all of the Passion Week of Jesus. It starts here, and it's not going to end until the the end of this week that that we're going to walk through the rest of the Gospel of John with, where when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowd gathers around and they sing Hosanna, essentially saying, this is the King, this is the Messiah, here's the King of Israel we've been waiting for. And then chronologically, just about a week later, it's going to be another crowd of people gathered in the same city who are all going to be crying out to the political authorities, crucify this guy. Uh, There is a fickleness to the crowds. The crowd doesn't understand what he's saying. He he speaks, and then God speaks from heaven. The Father speaks from heaven, saying that he has already glorified his name. He's going to glorify it again. And the crowd stands around going, well, that was interesting, thunder. And, and then Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be lifted up from the earth. And apparently the people there understood the context. Because it says there in verse 34, the crowd replied, we heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man's going to be lifted up? Who's this Son of Man? I mean, they don't get it. They're still confused about whether or not this really is the guy. And it's, it has not changed in 2,000 years. The crowd is going to constantly misunderstand the ways and the message of God. And yet, the, the ways and the message of God are still offered, this opportunity for salvation is offered to everyone. The death of Jesus is for the salvation, it says, of all people. He says there in verse 32, As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Not your good neighbors only not just the people who are like us, not the people who are in the right culture, not just the people who are looking out for it, not just the people who are really searching really, really hard. But he says, I will draw all people to myself. So the person that is your worst neighbor or the person that we think is from the worst culture or the people that are in the worst country or the people who are in the worst state of of being, The gospel is for all of these people. No one gets excluded from the opportunity of salvation. And so what we have to take on as believers, as emissaries of this message, is regardless of the crowd's reaction, we must be faithful to the master's message. You're going to share the gospel and get rejected. You're going to share the gospel and people are going to play it off as, well, that's really good for you, but not so great for me. One of the most insidious sets of phrases that have entered into the English language over the last few years are the two phrases, your truth and my truth. It's this idea that truth just operates on a sliding scale, and you present the gospel, and somebody responds with, well, that's, a real, that's good if that's your truth. But my truth is, and then they fill in the blank as to how they have divided out the eternal economy of all things. 
But regardless of what the crowd's reaction is, you and I are called to be faithful to constantly be sowers of the seed, constantly planting the gospel in people's lives. And this invitation that is made by Jesus to become children of God must be the invitation made by the church to everyone, everywhere, at all times. And so living out the transformation of the gospel, you can have a life that creates curiosity among the lost. Your lost neighbors should be curious why it is that you take time to go to a Bible study and and then attend a worship service. There should be something, some effect in your life that then shows up later on in the week where they go, well, I wonder if these two things are somehow connected. Your life can create that kind of spiritual curiosity that then we lead them to the idea that, that death to self is found through life in Christ, and if they will lose, give up, surrender all of this hope of changing themselves personally, that they can find true life in Christ. But no matter what, we as these followers of Jesus keep pressing on making this invitation, knowing that Jesus' death is for all mankind. So I want to encourage you this morning that you're somewhere in the equation here. Maybe you're in the part of the equation that you've been a believer for a long time, but you don't think maybe necessarily your life has created a lot of curiosity among the lost. You haven't worked at being persuasive in how grace works through you. Now, today would be the, a great day uh, to just say to the Lord, you know, God, how, how can you use my life to draw people to how you transform a life? What is it that you need to do in me so that your grace and your goodness and your mercy and that the very message of Jesus just oozes out of me? What is it that I need to do to be filled with the Spirit and to speak the word of life? Maybe you're on the side of the equation of you've wondered about Jesus. You're curious about Jesus. You like the idea of Jesus, but you know you've never actually made a decision to follow Jesus. You've never surrendered your heart and life. You've never confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, risen from the dead, that He paid for your sins. Today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that you can say to God, I believe, I trust, I'm going to put my hope in Jesus because He's the one who has died in my place for my sins and is risen from the dead. Or maybe somewhere on the spectrum, you're there in the middle about needing to find out about being baptized or becoming a member of a church, or you've got some spiritual need that you just want to pray about. Whatever that is, that's why we do what we do next. Uh, at, at this close of this message time, we pray, and, and then we have this time of singing together as a congregation, as a church family, so that people who need to make some kind of decision can make that decision, whether it's there, right there in your seat, or whether it's you want to come forward and talk with a pastor or have an extended conversation after the service about a spiritual need in your life that you finally tap into that spiritual curiosity that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah from the Lord, who has been lifted up in humiliating death, paying the price for your sin and mine, 
but then victoriously rising from the dead so that we could have real life, not comfortable life, real life in the eternal scope, connected with the Father in heaven, knowing that we will live with Him forever. Let's pray together. Father, I I do ask that you…